Hi, I'm Craig. And I'm Linda. And this is the Indie Travel Podcast at IndieTravelPodcast.com. This week it's episode 308 and we're talking about Japan. Well, we're not talking about Japan. We've got a special guest interviewee on for you later today and uh, he's an expert while we're not. No, we've never even been to Japan, which is a crying shame. I really, really want to go there. It's right on the top of the list, but we still haven't managed it. Today's show is sponsored by Context Travel at contexttravel.com. Context runs small group tours in cities in Europe, North and South America, and Asia. And Melbourne. Melbourne now? Cool. Oh, Oceania too. Anyway, they run tours in both Tokyo and Kyoto, which are both featured in this episode. So if you're planning a trip to Japan and are interested in a tour with a highly educated specialist guide who's passionate about their topic, then consider Context. Yeah, as a company, Context is passionate about deep travel, which is the idea that travel is immersive and transformative, building cultural bridges that change both people and places for the better. We crossed a cultural bridge uh, earlier this week. No, that was just a regular bridge. And it was, it was a walk of shame. Oh, my goodness. So here we are. We've been traveling for 10 years, and we still make ridiculous rookie mistakes. So the idea was that we would go from Moldova to Ukraine. And uh, we're there sitting on the train, early morning train, and I suddenly had a moment of horror that actually maybe New Zealanders did need a visa for Ukraine. So I pulled out my Moldovan phone and uh, found out to my horror that, yes, I did need a visa. And I did not have a visa. So when the train stopped at the station after crossing the border, I was gently but firmly told that I was not allowed into the country. (laughs) And we went through a long process of being taken back to the border and shown the bridge back to Transnistria, which is the uh, breakaway republic. It's part, well, technically part of Moldova, but they don't think so. And yes, we walked across the bridge away from Ukraine. So I got kicked out of a country and then forced into a country which nobody recognizes. It was so fun. Absolutely fascinating. Well, so we're here back in Chisinau, back in Moldova, and it's uh, the city's public holiday today. Yeah, it's Chisinau City Day. So for lunch, we headed out to the main street, which is Stefan Samare Boulevard, and it's close to traffic, but it was full of people. There are stalls all the way along selling all sorts of things, mostly honey, meat on sticks, and... All sorts of things. It was delicious. I finally found a craft brewery here. Found lots of great wineries, but there was a stall there uh, from a, a young kind of startup business that does American style barbecue and makes their own craft beer. It was so delicious. I was happy. You know what's really wrong with this week? What? There's been no rugby on all week. Yeah, it's, it's a sad thing because at the moment, of course, the Rugby World Cup is on. And you know what? Speaking of Japan, we have been ridiculously impressed with the Japanese team. And any team that calls itself the Brave Blossoms, I think that's, that's worth mentioning just in and of itself. But actually, they've been playing spectacularly well. Yeah, it's super impressive. Um, for people that really don't care, which I imagine is most of you out there, the Rugby World Cup is played every four years, and there's 20 teams, eight go into the quarterfinals. Japan's team has been the first team in Rugby World Cup history to win three out of four of their pool matches, but then not progress 
into the uh, the quarterfinals on bonus points and, and points differentials. And most notably, they played an, an amazing game against South Africa, which they won. And South Africa is... All the South the Africans are just going, la, 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 la. <laughs> Well, South Africa is one of the top three teams in the world. They're really good. Japan is not one of the top three teams in the world, and they played amazingly. So anyway, Japan, that's what we're talking about today. So let's get started. Let's talk to Andres and find out about him. Today, I'm speaking with Andres Soleta from BoutiqueJapan.com. Welcome onto the show. Thanks so much for having me. To begin with, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey and how you ended up uh, living, working, and running a boutique travel company in Japan? Well, it didn't didn't happen overnight. So I ended up living in Japan after I was having what I call a quarter-life crisis living in New York City. You know, basically I was 24. I wasn't doing anything I really loved, and I didn't have much direction. But I had studied Japanese in college and had still never been to Japan. And that's a long story, too. I ended up going to Cuba to study abroad um, when I, you know, had originally planned to go to Japan. So long story short, you know, I just decided to move to Japan when I was 24. And my goal was to, you know, quote unquote, master the Japanese language. Um, Obviously, that's not something you can do lightly. But I spent a few years living in Japan. And when I came back to the U.S., I just realized I couldn't stop thinking about returning So, you know, one of the ways to, you know, figure out how to go back to Japan frequently was to join the travel industry. And so I spent a few years working at a small travel company before finally launching our company that specializes just in Japan. That's cool. Now, for me, Japan is a country that I understand through I guess the the popular Western stereotypes. So uh, Studio Ghibli and uh, Hayao Miyazaki's work springs to mind, um, reading novels by Murakami, and then the kind of samurai geisha culture that's so popular in film. So how does that kind of concept stack up with reality and, and real real life 21st century travel in Japan? So the reality is a lot more multifaceted and a lot more, a lot richer than any person with any kind of preconceived notion of Japan ever expects. So all of those things are real. <laughs> um, you know, you will see anime, you will see geishas, um, you know, you will see things maybe that you read in a Murakami novel. You might get in a taxi and, you know, the taxi driver's playing jazz or classical music and you, you might think you're in the book. But the the thing about Japan is that everyone does, you know, before you go there, you have these strong images of Japan and everyone's are different. It kind of gives a lot of insight into each person, you know, depending on what they think Japan will be like. But once you get there, you find that is just more than you can imagine. I mean, it is modern. It is traditional, you know, huge cities, tiny villages. It kind of has all those contradictions. And, you know, I always joke that the cliche photo of Japan in guidebooks is a geisha on a cell phone because, <laughs> yeah. you know, everyone wants to see that old and new. And so when we were starting the company, we were looking for images to use on our website. And our initial goal was really to get away from the cliches and the stereotypes. But in the end, we realized we had to kind of include a few of those because that's also what people are imagining, you know, before they go. So we try to mix it up a little bit, but, yeah, I mean, it's true. All of those things that you mentioned are an actual 
part of you know real Japan? Well, there is so much to see in Japan, but a logical place to start is in Tokyo, the capital city. So I guess everyone's going to fly into into Tokyo. So should we start there? Absolutely. So most people do fly into Tokyo, although a lot of our Asian travelers fly into Osaka, which is near Kyoto.、Um, but you know the two. The absolute must-visit places are Tokyo and Kyoto. So, I think without fail, you know, if you're going to Japan, those are the two places that you want to kind of begin with. And then, depending on how long a person has, we usually recommend complementing them with something a bit more rural. So, there's not a specific must-see rural place, but I guess we can get to that. So, starting with Tokyo, you know, if you can spend three or four days there, I know, you know, some people get to travel for. Indefinite periods of time, in which case you should spend, you know, weeks or months there.、Um, you know, I lived there for four years, and I definitely don't feel like I have seen all of the city—not even close. It's just, you know, it's a huge city with so many interesting neighborhoods, and it's really eclectic. It's, you know, people kind of picture just really crowded subways and you know these intersections where thousands of people are crossing the street, and That is all a, a real part of Tokyo, but then there are so many quiet little neighborhoods that you would never imagine, where you could just be walking down the street and not hear a sound, and just you know see some kids playing on the street, maybe a little park, maybe a little cafe, and it's those places that you know we try to recommend to you know our travelers and our friends to try and see you know just how. Diverse the city is, so I mean, most people end up spending about three, four, five days there, and that's usually a good start, depending on how much time you have. Great. So if I had, if I was flying in one evening and I had,、uh, say, three days to order,、uh, you know, and, and get out and kind of see and experience Tokyo, where would you recommend I begin? Or what are some、uh, bullet points that that should be included in those days? Sure. So I think you know people want to see Skiji Fish Market without a doubt. So you know the famous fish market that it, part of it is moving next year in November 2016. It's a great place to start. You know on your first morning in Japan because you might be on a funny sleep schedule. You might wake up accidentally at 5 a.m. So you may as well head over there and start in the outer section of the market. Where you can have just a wander around and see all sorts of different products for sale. So the outer market is open to the public, and that's where you'll find seaweed, sushi restaurants, you know, fruits and vegetables, noodle shops,、um, knife shops.、And、then the inner market is where you'll actually see all the seafood, and that's technically not open to the public until 9 a.m. and If you can go at 9 a.m. and enter and see the seafood and the fishmongers, it's an amazing, amazing scene. So I think Skiji Market is a great place to start. After that, you know, I think some other places that you know in your three days that you should check off your lists、um, are, you know, the Ginza neighborhood, which is really nearby, and that's just kind of an iconic, elegant neighborhood. You know, it has kind of an old-fashioned feel, has the grand old department stores. You can go in the department store basements and get, you know, an amazing bento lunch and Japanese sweets. Some other neighborhoods are Harajuku, which you may have heard of. 
It's kind of the teen fashion capital. And next to Harajuku's crazy streets is uh, Omotesando, which is uh, an upscale neighborhood full of modern architecture. And, you know, if you walk into the back streets, you'll find tiny cafes and boutiques. So those two neighborhoods are next to each other. Um, <laughs> so I think you also want to hit a little bit of older Tokyo. So if you go up into the northeast corner of the city, you'll find some really nice traditional neighborhoods. The most famous one is called Asakusa. It's pronounced Asakusa, but when people see it in guidebooks, it's they always say Asakusa. Um, and basically, it's you know one of the oldest neighborhoods in in Tokyo. It has Tokyo's oldest temple, and it's a bit touristy, but I think it's worth seeing for everyone. You can see basically get a little taste of what Japan was like, you know, before the boom. And then my favorite old neighborhood, and I'll end with this one for now, is called Yanaka, and that's Yanaka. It's not too far from Asakusa. It's up in this part of the city. And it's just a really, really beautiful, quiet neighborhood that doesn't get as many tourists. And I'm probably ruining that right now. But <laughs> it's just full of temples, and it has a beautiful old cemetery, which may sound a bit macabre, but it's definitely okay to walk around. It's just a beautiful old area with, with lots of traditional little mom and pop shops. And you can really get a taste of what Tokyo might have been like, you know, decades ago. That sounds perfect. So going from the the hyper commercial and hyper busy into the the opposite end of that, into the quiet suburban neighborhoods where you're unlikely to find uh, many other travelers. Yeah, I mean, and there are so many other places too. So, no, with three days, I think you can see quite a lot and get a good taste for the city. Yeah, it definitely sounds that way. But there's more to Japan than just Tokyo. A visit to Osaka and Kyoto is also a must. So, Osaka, I mean, when people think of Osaka, and especially people who have been to Osaka think of Osaka, you know, the first thing that usually comes to mind is food. So, you know, it's really, really considered a foodie city, but not in the same way as Tokyo or Kyoto, which are also both definitely foodie cities. It's more of kind of a casual food city, which goes really well with the character of Osaka people who are completely unpretentious, uh, really outgoing. You know, it was traditionally a merchant city. And, you know, a funny fact about that is that, you know, most of the comedians in Japan actually come from Osaka. And once you get to Osaka, It'll kind of make sense. Um, so, I mean, most of our most of our clients usually end up spending a night or two in Osaka um, at the beginning or the end of the trip. And while you're there, I mean, you know, the thing to do is definitely go out, try the local food, um, definitely try, you know, takoyaki, which is commonly translated into English as octopus balls, which I don't think makes it sound that no <laughs> no that, do, that doesn't sound that good um, but there, so there these... joinder is asking what part of an, of an octopus is its balls <laughs> no so they're just basically little balls of dough with octopus and savory you know little morsels in there and it, they're delicious i mean they're the perfect kind of street snack even if you don't like octopus actually they're they're really really good and just go out for, you know, a big night. I mean, people in Osaka definitely like to have fun, go out, eat, drink, 
you know, hang out with friends. It could not be more different than the neighboring city of Kyoto, which is you know, these two cities kind of grew up next to one another, and they're almost you know it's like black and white. Oh wow! If you go to Osaka, there aren't as many sights to see. There are you know there aren't as many kind of must see or must do things. I think it's really all about just kind of going out, trying to talk to people, you know, going to little local restaurants, little hole in the wall places. And Osaka people are very outgoing, so it's really easy to kind of meet people and make friends there. Nice. And then when you head down to Kyoto, how is that so different? You said it's just about 30 kilometers away? It's uh, 30 miles away. And, you know, as you know, Kyoto was the capital of Japan for about a thousand years until Tokyo replaced it. And so it's really just, you know, the repository of traditional Japanese culture and everything, you know, a famous, a famous comparison between Osaka and Kyoto is that, you know, when you, when a, when a Kyoto person asks you to come into their house, you're supposed to basically turn them down, you know, multiple times. Whereas, you know, in Osaka, they would scoff at that and say, ha, you know, they're so, <laughs> they're so formal. They're so formal. I mean, Kyoto is, just a beautiful, beautiful city. I mean, it's full of UNESCO sites. It's a large city. It has about a million people. And, you know, it's not a village. It's not rural like some people might imagine. And so you will still see a lot of concrete and neon and you'll see Starbucks even. <laughs> but once you get into the back streets and the quiet neighborhoods, then you start to really absorb why it's such a magical city and why it's inspired so many people for generations. Wow. Give us a little bit of insight into what that's like. I have a certain image in my head right now, and I'm wondering how accurate that is. <laughs> so when you get to Kyoto Station, it's a big modern station, and your first impression, my first impression was, oh, didn't really expect a big city here. You have to get out of the very center of the city. So let's start in the eastern part of the city. There's a river that runs north-south and divides um, part of the city east, east to west. So if you cross the Kamogawa River, you'll end up in the Higashiyama area. And Higashiyama just means eastern mountains. And I think this is a great place to start if you want to start getting a taste for traditional Kyoto. Because once you start walking in the back streets of Higashiyama, then you will definitely be transported into you know, the old Japan that I'm sure you're imagining. You'll see cobblestone streets, wooden buildings. You know, If you walk around at 5 or 6 in the evening, you'll actually see geisha and uh, maiko, which are apprentice geisha, you know, in, on their you know, huge wooden clogs you know, scuttling off to work. Um, you'll see, you know, in cherry blossom season, which I was just there a few weeks ago for that, you'll see these gorgeous cherry trees lining the streets and, you know, everyone just enjoying sake or picnics underneath. So I think, you know, when people, a lot of people go to Japan for that historical aspect, Kyoto is definitely the place to spend as much time as possible. That's awesome. 
And uh, one thing that seems to be such a big part of the history for me that takes us out of the, the cities a little bit and into the country is the kind of the spa culture, I guess uh, we might yes. call it. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about that? Yes, definitely. So they're called onsen, and onsen just means hot springs. And really the quintessential way to experience onsen is to go to a ryokan, and ryokan are traditional Japanese inns. And so even though there are a few ryokan in cities, I mean, absolutely, you're, you're right. The best way to experience this is to go out into the countryside. So luckily, Japan has onsen almost everywhere. So no matter what part of Japan you're in, you'll find you know, beautiful, beautiful traditional inns that have been around for 100, 200 years. So, you know, let's say you want to go to one that's a few hours away from Tokyo or Kyoto. You know, what you would do is you would hop on the train. You'd probably take the train an hour or two and you'd probably come to a little country station. Then you'd hop on the shuttle or, you know, a little local bus and go for another 30 minutes or so. So you end up at this remote wooden building, Ryokan, and you enter. And the first thing you'll do is take off your shoes at the entrance and, you know, they'll be replaced by slippers and you won't see your shoes for another couple of days. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And then you'll be led to your room um, and, you know, you'll basically be seated around a little, a low table. And sometimes there are chairs, you know, every Ryokan is different, but very traditionally, you know, there will be kind of cushions on the floor and you'll sit on these cushions and your assistant, the the staff from the Ryokan will prepare and then serve you some green tea and a little Japanese sweet, you know, maybe it's a cracker or a cookie. Um, So the next thing you'll do, she'll show you in the closet, there will be robes, yukata, and those are Japanese robes. So... You know, after she leaves, you'll take off all your clothes and put on robes. You probably won't see your clothes <laughs> for the rest of <laughs> the time you're staying there. And then, like you said, it's the spa. And so it's a spa in the sense of, you know, it's a thermal hot springs. Some very luxurious ryokans also have spas as in, you know, a place where you can get massage, etc. But very, very, very traditional inns. It's all about the, the hot springs. So you'll go down and, you know, I don't know if you, how much you know, but, you know, there's a lot of etiquette involved with getting into the water. So if you want, okay. I can get into some of that detail. Yeah. So I you mean, don't basically. just dive in here first. No. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's quasi religious. I mean, it's, it's almost, it's, it's quite, um, spiritual in a way. I mean, you basically, you go down and you, take off your robe, and then you clean yourself really thoroughly before you get into the water. And, you know, nothing but you can go into the water. No bathing suit, no towel, you know, nothing. And it's a really, really just peaceful and healing experience. Every hot spring has its own mineral and chemical properties. And so different hot springs claim to help with different conditions. But really... At the end of the day, it's just super, super relaxing, and it's something that you absolutely must do. So beautiful, so beautiful. Well, on the other side of that, last time we spoke, uh, you were just about to do one of your first ever hiking experiences in Japan. How did that go? 
I mean, Japan actually offers some incredible hiking. Um, you know, my first hiking experience ever was up Mount Fuji. And if you're traveling in the summer, then I definitely recommend challenging Fuji-san. It's not the most beautiful hike. You know, basically, while you're going up, you, the, the scenery isn't always the prettiest. It's not a very pretty mountain at the top. But once you reach the summit and can look out, you know, around you, I mean, it's really a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Um, so I definitely recommend that. But other than that, I mean, I think some of the greatest hiking experiences are in really rural areas. And, you know, Fuji is just 90 minutes away from Tokyo, so it's really easy. But to really experience Japan, like I said earlier, I think you need to combine Tokyo and Kyoto with at least one extremely rural place because Tokyo is Tokyo and uh, Kyoto is still quite a large city. So even though you'll get the traditional experience, you won't really get the full, broad, kind of well-balanced perspective. So, you know, one of the best hikes I can recommend for people who are, I mean, I guess there there are a few. So some people want to do just a, a day or two walking. And there's a beautiful place called the Kiso Valley. That's K-I-S-O. And it's not too far off the path between Tokyo and Kyoto. So it's quite easy to fit into an itinerary. And if you go to the Kiso Valley, you can do a day hike along the old Nakasendo Trail. And so it's just an old, you know, it's part of the, the road between um, Tokyo and Kyoto, basically. Um, and so you can walk in the woods. And this is really something that you can do as a one-day hike or, you know, for people who want to do two or three days, you know, it's possible to put a two or three-day itinerary together. And you're basically walking from village to village through the woods. Oh, so it's some, cool. Yeah, so it's, some, it's not particularly intense hiking, but, I mean, it's it's more for people who want to get a sense of rural life and also history, um, but also do a bit of walking. And then you spend the nights at little inns, you know, basically little country inns. So they're kind of like Ryokans, but even more simple, just little guest houses. And, you know, you get there and you do the same routine. You take off your shoes. Um, you have a beautiful dinner at the, at the place and you soak in the baths. So really nice, really, really nice experience for two or three days. That's cool. That sounds a lot like the uh, Caminos de Santiago, which are the, the famous walking trails through Spain where you're kind of walking not far, maybe 15 to 25 kilometers a day, but then every couple of kilometers you're passing through uh, another small town as the, the trails continue. So it's funny that you mentioned the Camino because the Camino, and this is not very well known yet, but I think it will be, Actually, there's a dual pilgrim program for people who have com completed the Camino because the other route is the Kumano Kodo in Japan. Mm -hmm. So basically in the south of Japan, you will find this gorgeous area where, and actually I, I saw quite a few Spaniards there um, because you know they're, they're getting their dual pilgrim status. 
but the Kumano Kodo is uh, another multi-day hike. And this one is really remote. So, I mean, if you want to see something that very, very few tourists get to see, I think, you know, Kumano Kodo is a gorgeous area. And it's basically centered around three major shrines um, in the area that have been worshipped for a very long time, you know, even before, um, you know, Shinto and, and Buddhism were really, um, what's the word? It, the reason that UNESCO, one of the reasons UNESCO recognized, recognized uh, Kumano Kodo was because of the syncretism between kind of the traditional indigenous beliefs and then Buddhism. So, you know, for people who are interested in, in Shinto and Buddhism, it's an amazing place, but also just for people who want to walk in really quiet areas. And, and like Camino, you walk from, from, you know, village to village and you spend your night at, at little inns and there are a lot of hot springs in this area. So that's another part of the experience. So it's just another of, you know, many, many hiking opportunities in the country. Sounds amazing. I'm going to have to get that booked in. Andres runs Boutique Japan, which is an agency that puts together custom trips for travelers to Japan, but we'll let him explain for himself. As the name implies, we're pretty small, you know, we're boutique, we're small, and we put bespoke cultural trips together for individuals, couples, families, and small groups. And so, you know, a typical scenario might be someone looking for a two-week trip and, you know, they're interested in food and art and they definitely want to go to Tokyo and Kyoto, but they're not really sure what else to do. So, you know, we meet halfway and we discuss possibilities and then we craft, you know, a custom trip that includes all of the essential logistics, but not necessarily overpacking the trip with things because the type of people that we end up working with are usually independent minded travelers who don't mind a little wandering around, a little getting lost, you know, don't necessarily want activities all the time, but also do want some really good local insight. So want to meet with local guides certain days for that, you know, extra insight that you wouldn't get wandering around on your own or through a guidebook. So that's, you know, the, the kind of travelers who we love to work with are independent, but also, you know, maybe don't have the time to put the whole thing together or just want to work with someone who can go back and forth and give ideas and, you know, really help get the most out of the experience. Sounds great. You've certainly shown off your uh, local expertise today. So we, uh, we better hit this lightning round. I'm going to ask you for uh, one tip, one caution, and one, and only one, must-eat dish for your time no. in Japan. <laughs> I know, that's the hardest part. So uh, hit me. What's one tip for travel in Japan? You need a pocket Wi-Fi device. So a pocket Wi-Fi device basically lets you connect to the Internet from almost anywhere in Japan, unless you're in a really, really remote area. And it's absolutely essential because travelers these days are so used to just finding Wi-Fi wherever you go. And that's not really the case in Japan. Free Wi-Fi is not widespread. So if you want to check your email from the bullet train or upload photos or, you know, look at a Google map while you're out exploring, you need one of these pocket Wi-Fi devices. Great. Okay. One caution. Don't pack too much. It's really hard to get around Japan 
unless you have a personal assistant carrying your suitcase if you've packed too much. This It's just not set up for that. So even when you show up at major places like Tokyo Station or Kyoto Station, you'll have to lug your suitcases up and down the platform looking for an escalator or an elevator. It's not always there. And inevitably, you will have to at some point carry your heavy suitcase up and down stairs. And it's just a real pain in the butt. So just don't pack too heavily. I mean, you can bring as much as you need. And the really cool thing is that the luggage forwarding services in Japan are extremely cheap and efficient. So if you buy stuff, you can have it sent you know, directly to the airport or you know, to your next hotel. So just pack lightly. And one must-eat dish. Oh, man. Can't believe you did this too. <laughs> yeah, I'm cruel like um, that. I'm going to go with uh, tonkatsu. And tonkatsu is basically a breaded pork cutlet. And that might not sound very exciting, but as long as you eat meat, trust me, you'll thank me later. Um, for those who don't eat meat, I would say... Shojin ryori, which is basically Buddhist food, vegetarian food. And even non-vegetarians will love this. It's just beautifully prepared. You'll get so, such a variety of, you know, different vegetable dishes and tofu and miso soup. So I'll go with those two because I think everyone else will, will have all the famous ones anyway. Awesome. Well, Andres, thanks so much for coming on the show and, uh, all the best for uh, your stay in the States at the moment and the, the next trip back to Japan. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. So, Craig, Boutique Japan seems a lot like J-Way Travel, which you traveled with to the Baltics. It's interesting. I think this kind of highly personalized trip planning service is becoming more popular. It's not quite a tour, uh, but it's also not so time-intensive as planning a, a whole trip yourself. And you get local experts on the ground that help kind of put everything together for you. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. So you don't have to do all of the planning, but you still get a really, really excellent trip. Another great company for independent travelers is our sponsor for this episode, Context Travel. They have a wealth of tours in Tokyo and Kyoto, including food tours, hands-on experiences, and tours focused on history or spirituality. I particularly like the look of one called Synchronized Spirituality, Shinto and Buddhism in Tokyo. And there's one called woodblock printing workshop in Kyoto. But there are also market tours, a history tour about Japanese gardens, a meditation workshop. Seems like any aspect of Japanese culture you're interested in, there's a tour for it. So check out contexttravel.com and search for Japan in the search box to see all the tours they offer there. We're going to be up to quite a bit in the next few weeks as we finally make it into Ukraine. (laughs) If we finally make it into Ukraine. Visa gods allowing. And then we bounce back to London for a few days before WTM, World Travel Market. And then we fly down to Mexico. It struck me today that in less than a month, we will be in Cancun. Yeah, I think it's about three weeks. Yeah. It's absolutely mind-blowing. It's okay, Craig. It's okay. My mind is blown. It's okay. You'll be okay. So far, our only plans are to fly into Cancun, get out of there as soon as possible, probably hitting inland and west or along the coast. Are we staying in a resort for a week? We are. We are. Um, Is that right at the beginning? Yeah. Okay, then we'll do that first and then we'll get out. Uh, Our friend Ed has a timeshare, so we're going to be staying there. Should be interesting. 
then we're jumping over to Cuba for a few weeks, and who knows what's happening after that, because I sure don't. Should be fun. Well, I think on that note we might leave you because, well, we're in Moldova. I think it's time to open a bottle of wine. That sounds culturally appropriate. I think so. So until next time, travel well.